All right. Well, open your Bibles if you would. We're going to be in a couple places. John chapter two. John chapter two. Uh, anybody catch last night the Discovery special, the two-hour special on the tomb of Jesus? How many of you caught that? Anybody? One. Awesome. Awesome. Way to be relevant, church. Way to be relevant. Involved in uh, what's going on in the world today. Awesome. Uh, anybody catch the Ted Koppel piece, the one-hour critical review of it afterwards? None. You did? Oh, five minutes of it. Awesome. Thriving, thriving tonight. Good job, guys. All right. Uh, well, there's a uh, big discovery, at least some of you are aware of, that was released. It was actually made in 1980, but about the tomb of Jesus. And the claim was... Um, by uh, the film producer and a journalist that essentially the the bones of Jesus had been discovered. And so they did a two-hour, they they showed the film last night on the Discovery Channel and showed all of the evidence, the scientific evidence and all of the deductions that they're trying to make to uh, to make their case. And uh, and as a film piece, it was a, well done. It was a well done film piece. But the question still remained, did they make their case? And so uh, the best part of it was the one-hour Ted Koppel piece afterwards, which I thought Ted Koppel did a very nice job, actually, bringing on the right kinds of guests and asking very good questions, actually. Uh, the, the person who made the film was on there, so he got to actually engage in the discussion with these critical scholars, and it was very, very well done. But one particular aspect of it really amazed me. The first 30 minutes, he brought in people who were, you know, archaeologists and people who are more in the kind of the tangible field of studying ossuaries and these things. The second half of it, he brought in New Testament scholars, okay, or at least people who have um, the a theological background or theological training to look at what are the theological or the religious implications of this if it is true, okay? Uh, one of the, so, so Ted Koppel asks the question, if this film turns out to be accurate and these are in fact the bones of Jesus, he asks these three panelists, he says, what are the theological or the religious implications of this? Well, the first person that's going to ask, uh, he is um, the president of a very prestigious Catholic University um, in the United States, a very good school in the sense of academics, and uh, and you could tell from the rest of the show that this is a man who certainly, in my opinion, from what he shared, knows Christ well, has a relationship with Christ. But he asks him the question: If in fact this film is true, what are the religious implications of this? And astoundingly, I couldn't believe it. He says to me. Even if it's true, it wouldn't shake my faith that I would still remain essentially a Christian. It's been a faith that's been handed to me from generation to generation, from the apostles to today, and it wouldn't shake my faith one bit. Um, it, it reminded me, actually, of, the, of the, the funny story some of you may have heard of, of the, the guy that thought he was dead. You guys ever hear about that guy? He thought he was dead, and... He was kind of an embarrassment to his best friend. And everywhere he would go, he would tell people that he was dead. And so finally his buddy thought he needs some serious help. So he calls a doctor, a friend of his, and says, Hey, can I bring my buddy in? Could you prove to him uh, through, through, uh, 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 what? through uh, medical science? Thank you. Brain fart. Sorry. Through medical science. Uh, that he's not dead. So he brings, his, uh, he brings this uh, guy into the doctor's office, and the doctor opens up his manuals, of uh, you know, physiology manuals, and shows him the anatomy of living things and the anatomy of dead things. And, and he shows this guy, and he says, There, do, do you see? You're not dead. You're alive. And the guy says, oh, I, don't, I, I don't know. That's pretty technical to me. I just, I don't, I'm not sure. And the guy says, look, come here. And he takes him down. He takes him to the morgue. And he asks the guy, listen, do dead men bleed? And the guy goes, no, dead men don't bleed. And so he pokes the finger of a dead guy, and sure enough, it doesn't bleed. Is this guy dead? Yeah, he's dead. He goes, give me your finger. The guy gives him his finger, and he takes a little pin, and he kind of pricks his finger, and bloop, a little blood comes out. And the doctor says, there, 
See? And the guy says, Doc, that's incredible. Dead men do bleed. <laughs> See? It doesn't matter what you show this guy, right? Uh, his faith is not going to be shaken, right? And that's kind of what this guy was like last night, which was very disheartening to me, that uh, he was able to, you know, on national TV, to take the stance of, I don't care what the evidence is, I don't care even hypothetically if it's true, it's not going to rattle my faith. Well, the next panelist was uh, actually a professor of New Testament who uh, comes from Dallas Seminary, Dr. Dale Bach, a highly esteemed New Testament scholar, a Lucan scholar, love his work. And, uh, and he nailed it. It was great. And he says in so many words, when Koppel asks him, he says, the implications would be enormous. It would show that the entire faith that we believe in as Christians is untrue and it's false. And he quotes Paul's words about our faith is in vain and that we're still in our sins because there's been no conquering of sin and death. You see? And he shows that everything is at stake on this claim. You can't just stick your head in the sand like an ostrich and just say, I don't care what the facts are. If the body of Jesus was in fact produced or the bones are shown, and it is in fact the bones of Jesus, then we need to all tonight go hit the clubs. And I'll lead, I'll lead the carpool. We head out tonight. I'm getting me, I'm getting wasted tonight. See? That's what you do, by the way. You don't go become a Buddhist or something else. You just give it up and head out, and you go hit the ghost bar, man, and you party down tonight is what you do. See? If it's not true. It's like one, one, uh, one man once said, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, um, then nothing ultimately matters. But if Jesus Christ did rise from the dead, then nothing else ultimately matters. You see, it all hinges on that. In theology, they got a fancy word for it. Uh, the resurrection of Christ is called a touchstone proposition, which means that everything hinges on that one central event. Listen, we can differ in a group here. We can differ on speaking in tongues. We can differ on when to take communion how to take communion. We can, we can differ on the age of the earth. We can even differ on sovereignty and free will. Some of you might want to be Calvinists. Some of you might want to be Arminians. Hey, that's okay. Half of you are wrong, but that's all right. Okay? We can differ on these things. But we cannot differ on the fact of the resurrection of Jesus. That is the foundation upon which everything is built. Amen? That's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 12 to the end of the book, 19. In fact, he says, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, he says, now we, speaking of Christians, are a people to be most pitied. That we're the most pitiful group of people in the world, according to Paul. You know why? Because we're guilty of two heinous things. One, we're guilty of idolatry. Because we're worshiping someone as God that is not God. And that's bad. That's a bad deal. Worshiping someone as God that's not God, right? Kind of like this fruitcake down in Miami, Florida now that claimed that he was Jesus Christ, the Messiah, a few years ago. Now he's claiming that he's the Antichrist. And so now his, his parishioners now, he's told them all to go get 666 tattooed on them. They're all getting 666 tattooed on themselves. And they're all allegedly born-again Christians. It's crazy. No. See, it matters. We are guilty of idolatry if he's not, in fact, risen from the dead. Uh, and even on one level, worse than that, we're all guilty of being self-delusional. Because all of us here who know Christ have all had the experience of Christ seemingly being alive. Right? That there's this thing that we call the presence of Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit, that gives us a constant awareness of God. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then it is, it's just tears from last night. It's Tex-Mex that's stirring up inside of you. It's not the Holy Spirit inside of you. It's an intestinal thing. See? And you are delusional that when you lift your hands in songs and praise and, and, and we're led to worship and you feel that sense of the Spirit moving in you, 
That's just a physiological response from a stimulus up here, and that's all that it is. See? So it's huge, is it not? I was on a tennis court last uh, this past week, and I'm teaching a lesson to a couple couple girls, and they're in their 30s. Um, girl, I don't know what to call girls in their 30s. Girls or ladies? Uh, girls? Young women. There you go. Couple of young young women in their in their thirties, and uh, one of them is a really strong Christian, and the other one uh, is not. Emphasis on not. All right, um, and uh, we're talking, uh, we're kind of talking, and this whole thing comes up about the tomb of Jesus and stuff. And this other girl who uh, doesn't know the Lord, uh, she says, uh, "I wouldn't be surprised if that really those really are the bones." Can y'all hear that? I can hear it. Wow. So it's feedback. Um, and I said, really? She goes, I don't buy all that hokey Christianity stuff. Now, all she knows me as is the tennis coach. She doesn't know anything else about me. Right? And I said, I said really? She said, yeah. She said, I said, well, so what's your beef? I mean, what, what is it about Christianity that you don't like? She said, I've got a, I've got a girl that I, I've known for years that all of a sudden she got born again and she's so rude and offensive to me. She's always like pushing Jesus down my throat. She goes, I hate it. And I said, that's the reason you, you don't believe in Christianity? She said, yes. And I said, you're kidding. I said, so you think that the actions and the attitudes of this one friend of yours, that is the basis of whether or not Christianity as an entire religion for 2,000 years is true or false? And then she goes... Well, I'm not, I'm not saying that, I guess. So that's what you just said. And so I began to share with her kind of a little bit what we're going to do tonight. And I said, hey, listen. I said, the basis of Christianity is, is rooted in one thing. I said, do you know what that is? And she said, Jesus? I said, what about Jesus? I said, everybody lives. So what is it about Jesus? That he died? I said, no, not that he died. She goes, oh, that he rose from the dead? I said, Yes. I said, the Bible makes the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, that either happened or it didn't happen. Would you agree with that? She said, yeah. I said, so if it did happen, it doesn't matter how people act, it's still true. And she goes, yeah, but how could you know? And I said, well, now that's a different question. I said, you rejected it initially on the basis of a friend, but you realize that the question that you're really asking is, is it really true that Jesus rose from the dead? And I said, if the answer is yes, that he did, then in fact, you need to submit and follow Christ because that's what he calls us to do. And she goes, how could you possibly know? And I said, well, that's going to be next week's lesson, which is Wednesday. So I can't wait. She's, I'm sure, all excited about her tennis lesson on, uh, on Wednesday. Uh, but that whole perception right there, there's this perception in the world today, especially in our culture, that religion is nothing but just a matter of taste. You see, if you look at your notes here, I gave you here two classes of truth. You see that in Roman numeral one? There's what's known as subjective truth, which is matters of taste. Some of you heard me uh, share some of these, what these are like. These are things, for instance, um, like Diet Dr. Pepper, for instance. That's the one I like to use a lot of times. Diet Dr. Pepper. A lot of times, you know, if I ask you guys who here really likes Diet Dr. Pepper, go ahead and be honest and raise your hand. Oh, a few more than usual. Six. Okay. Everyone else, uh, how many of you think Diet Dr. Pepper really has a, a pretty bad aftertaste and it's one of the worst soft drinks ever made in mankind? Yeah. The rest of us. Right. Now, we can have a debate up here tonight and say, we're going to debate whether or not Diet Dr. Pepper is good or not. Okay? And we'll get one of you from each position come up here and you will just do battle. And at the end of the debate, will we ever come to the conclusion that Diet Dr. Pepper tastes good or bad? Will we? We never will. And there, I mean, it would be close. Right? Uh, but... We wouldn't because Diet Dr. Pepper and things that you drink and things that you eat and styles of clothing that we wear, these things are in general matters of taste that we can differ on. Okay, They're matters of opinion. But there's another class of truth that are more objective and they're matters of fact. Okay, These are things that are subject to being testable. The laws of logic. All right? There are things like, for instance, 
Uh, my son Cooper, I've got a seven and a half year old son. He's in first grade. He's learning math. When he brings his math homework and I get to look at it, um, I'll see five plus five is ten. Good job, Cooper. But if I ever saw on one of his pieces of homework, five plus five equals, and he writes nine, and if his teacher ever wrote, good job, real close, I would have a serious problem and there would be a parent-teacher conference very quickly. And I would say, don't you dare spare the self-esteem of my child at the expense of truth. He's got to learn the truth. So don't worry about making him feel good or anything about that. You make sure he learns his math, you see, because that is something that is objective and it's true and I value truth and I want him to learn the truth. Y'all with me? The laws of mathematics, those are things that you can be wrong about. Amen? Unless you're a genius here, we've all experienced um, utter misery in math. Leave that alone. Science. Laws of science. Uh, somebody could tell me to their blue in the face, the law of gravity doesn't apply in all places and at all times. And I've got some wonderful tests that we could use to prove that the law of science is a universal thing. There's some great tall buildings, even in Flower Mound, that I would love to take this person up to the top of, and it would take just about 6.2 seconds for them to realize that the law of gravity always applies. They can scream all they want on the way down, I don't believe, I don't believe, I don't believe, I don't believe, all right, uh, until splat. Uh, the laws of science are absolute. Uh, it was interesting, there was a debate between a Christian philosopher and an Eastern philosopher, and they were debating the laws of logic. And the Eastern approach generally is that the West is too narrow, that there are no real moral, fi there are no real fixed absolute laws of logic, that that's simply a construction made up by man. And the Christian philosopher asked this guy, he said, hey, how did you get here to the debate? In other words, how did, you get, how did you get to the city? And the guy said, I flew. He said, you flew? On an airplane? Yes, on an airplane. So he said, let's say that you went to the airport to fly on this airplane, and they gave you a choice of three airplanes. And one of them had one engine, and it was on the left wing, but no right engine. And one of them had one wing, and the other one had two wings and the engines where they're supposed to be. He said, which of those planes would you, would you fly? He goes, the third one. He goes, well, isn't that pretty narrow-minded? I mean, don't you think that the first two would fly? He goes, no. He said, why not? And the guy said, because of the laws of aerodynamics and thrust and these sorts of things. And the guy said, so you're telling me in the debate that you don't believe in the laws of logic, that they're not absolute, yet when it comes to flying an airplane, you want a plane that abides by the laws of aerodynamics and the laws of logic. You see the point? That it's one thing to say it all you want until it's time now to actually live it. See, and when we live, we actually apply these universal laws. So we've got math, you've got logic, you've got science, but there's one more that's important, and that is history. History is not a matter of taste. George Washington either was a president of the United States or he wasn't. Uh, if we had a debate and both people at the end of the debate shook hands and said, you know what, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Yeah, that's true for me, but it's not true for you. That's okay. We're both right. All of us would look at that debate and go, that is an utter joke. Because we would know that there either was a president named George Washington or there was not, right? History isn't a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of taste. Interpretations may be a matter of opinion, but history in and of itself is not. So here's the question. Is religion a matter of taste, i.e. Diet Dr. Pepper and sushi? Or is it a matter of fact, i.e. the laws of science and mathematics where you can be wrong on? Well, um... Not remarkably, unremarkably, our culture today says that religion is what? It's a matter of taste. And they say it's a matter of taste. Give me a couple reasons real quick that they say it's a matter of taste. What are some of the reasons? What's that? There you go. One, it's, it's kind of rude to look at another religion, right, and say that's not a true religion. It may do some good things, but it's not true. Yeah, so it's kind of um, kind of rude and mean-spirited, narrow-minded. 
right? Um, what else? Yeah, hey, whatever works, man. Hey, Krishna works for you, fantastic. Muhammad works for me. Jesus works for you, awesome. Hey, whatever works, these are great things, right? A pragmatism argument. That's right, it's just whatever ends up working. Um, it's kind of like this book, The Secret, that's just come out. If you guys have seen this new book, The Secret, kind of pooling from all of these religions and philosophers and, you know, hey, whatever works, see? We just borrow from everybody. Um, or it's just the idea that, you know, uh, you grew up in a particular belief system. It's just not fair that if you grew up with a particular belief system, for that belief system to be judged wrong. It's not your fault that you grew up in it. You'll see kind of why we now reduce religion to a matter of opinion or taste. It's whatever you grew up with. It's whatever feels good, whatever works. And hey, I don't want to judge you about that. But as Mortimer Adler, um, a great philosopher of the 20th century who passed away a few years ago, said, religion, if it has a historical foundation, is not a matter of taste. If its basis is rooted in history, it is making a historical claim, right? So therefore, it is either true or false. So, what is the historical foundation, or the claim at least, of Christianity? That Jesus Christ was born, lived, died, and rose from the dead. See, it's the resurrection. That is the historical claim. That is either historically true, or it's historically false. You see now why the bones matter? If the bones actually are the bones of Jesus, that means, historically speaking, Christianity is false. Now, look at John 2 here. Jesus actually has asked the question. He just gets through clearing the temple, remember? Jesus comes in there. He sees them um, uh, abusing the temple by making profit and taking advantage of the poor in the temple. He turns over the tables and um, begin in verse 18 of chapter 2. The Jews say to him, they demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Are they any different than us today, by the way? I mean, we try to make them back then less, less interested in proof and evidence than we are today. They wanted proof. What miraculous sign are you gonna, can you show us to prove what you're saying is true? What does Jesus say? Verse 19, Jesus answered them and he said, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was what? His body. See, Jesus said, I'm going to give you proof. Just hang on. That proof's coming. When you guys take me up and you bind me and you crucify me and I'm dead and I'm buried, you wait and in three days I'm going to take up this temple and I'm going to raise it from the dead. You see? Body, bones, everything is going to be raised from the dead. See, Jesus was going to give them proof. And look what happens here. The disciples remember these words. Look what happens. He says, um, after he was raised from the dead... His disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So what was the power or what was the influence of the resurrection on the disciples' lives? It led them to belief. You see, he remembered the words that he had spoken. He had raised himself from the dead. And it was the resurrection that allowed these people now to commit their lives to them, to him and eventually give up their own lives. So the resurrection is incredibly important, just as important today as it was to them back then. Now the question is, did it really happen? Did the resurrection happen? Well, I want to do this fairly quickly with you. Um, look at Roman numeral 3 here. Anytime you're trying to determine whether or not a theory or a claim is true, you're going to use a lot of different criteria. We're just going to look at two of these, okay? One of these is what's known as explanatory scope. What that simply says is, does the conclusion explain all of the data? Okay? So in other words, um, well, let me explain the other one. Then you have explanatory power, and that is, is the conclusion able to explain all of the data? So here, here's an example of this. We do this all the time, by the way. Every day, we all use um, explanatory scope and explanatory power anytime we're trying to see if something makes sense. It would be like 
um, if you had a son, let's say he's three weeks old, and there's a broken window in the house, and a baseball, and he's in his carrier by the window, and your husband comes and says, Aha! Johnny did it! You would look at him and you'd say, Well, that would have explanatory scope. There's someone in the room, but that would not have what? Explanatory power. Johnny can't throw a baseball yet. But what if Johnny's six? And now you go, huh, I wonder if Johnny broke the window. And you realize, well, wait a minute, Johnny broke the vase last week. We asked Johnny about it and he lied about it. The, 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 the baseball came in the direction that Johnny is, right? And you go, huh, I look at all of the data and I say, Johnny broke the window. Does that explain all of the data? Yes. Is Johnny able to break the window? Yes. Therefore, Johnny's getting a whooping. Right? That's how we do it. So anytime we're trying to figure out the facts or trying to come up with something, this is what we use. And they do this in all kinds of things. Forensic science. CSI, if you guys ever watch CSI. What they do is they look at the crime scene, right? They get all of the data. And then they come up with these plausibility structures of who did what. Right? And the final conclusion that they come up with, it has to incorporate all of the data, doesn't it? If anything is left out, then that person is innocent. Right? And that person had to have had the ability to do it. We do this in archaeology. We do this in forensic science. We do this in every aspect of life. So, historians do this. They look at the facts of history and they say, okay, we know these things to be true. These are accepted. What theory best explains all of these facts? And that's all we're going to do tonight, just for a few minutes, okay? And I want us to look at the plausibility structure or case for the resurrection, okay? So, what are some of these facts? Well, there's numbers of them. I'm just going to share with you a few of them. Turn to Luke chapter 4 real fast. Luke chapter 4. If you look in 4a, one of the first things that we note here is that Jesus made unprecedented claims about being the fulfillment of the kingdom. Okay? Jesus made these claims. Uh, let me show you one of them. Beginning in verse 16 of chapter 4 in Luke, it says that Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, and as was his custom, he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And here's what Jesus says. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, uh, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then look what happens. Then He rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on Him, and He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What did Jesus just do? He just made the unprecedented claim that he was the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee that God was going to send, and he would set the captives free, that sin would be dealt with, the blind would see, the lame would walk. He is the fulfillment of the messianic hope. See, he made these unprecedented claims to being the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. So, number one, virtually nobody disputes this idea that Jesus made these radical claims. It's pretty much agreed. B, Jesus was crucified and buried. Now, if you were here last week, I covered the evidence for that last week. Remember the ancient testimony I read from Josephus, from Tacitus, from Pliny. Um, we looked at the Gospels and their records. Uh, the Apostle Paul is an independent witness also. You've got James. You've got Peter. You've got other letters. We've got multiple witnesses who all agree that, in fact, Jesus was crucified and he was buried. Now, granted, other people have tried to counter those claims, i.e., the Quran or the Islamic Scriptures try to counter it by saying Jesus was never crucified. But we've got early testimony from Jews, Romans, um, Christians, 
all independently agreeing that Jesus, in fact, was buried and killed. Killed and buried. Okay? Y'all with me so far? There's fact number two. Fact number three. Jesus' tomb was, in fact, found empty. This isn't really debated much. Even some of the most radical critics today accept the fact that the tomb of Jesus was found empty. The reason we know this is because some of the most radical critics today are writing, trying to explain what happened to the body. Uh, John Dominic Cross, one of the leading critical New Testament scholars in the world today, says that when Jesus was taken down from the cross, the reason that the tomb was empty is because his body was thrown into a common grave site uh, for criminals, and dogs came and ate the body of Jesus. And so therefore, there's no, there's no body left. There's no remains. And so whatever was the alleged tomb was in fact empty. So you've got people today that acknowledge this is a, a historical fact. The tomb of Jesus was found empty. Uh, many of you know one of the main reasons this is accepted also internally from the text is because of the first eyewitness of the empty tomb. Who was who? Mary Magdalene, right? Now we know Mary Magdalene had a, a particular condition when Jesus first met her. Do you remember what Mary Magdalene's condition was? She was possessed by demons. That's a, that's a bad deal also. Seven demons inside of Mary Magdalene. Jesus cast these demons out and she becomes the first eyewitness of the empty tomb. Now to us we think, okay, great, we got an eyewitness. But in that day, that was horrible. Because first of all, you guys, many of you know that a woman's testimony back then was rejected. And not only was it not just a basic woman, but it was a woman who had been formerly demon-possessed. That's your first eyewitness. That's a bad way to start this belief system. You see? And in fact, they go tell the disciples. And remember what the disciples said? Uh-uh. And John and Peter took off, didn't they? And they ran to the tomb to see for themselves. And sure enough, the tomb was empty. So, the question becomes, what happened? Where did the body go? Next, you've got James, the brother of Jesus, who believed his brother was God. I always like to do this. How many of you here have a brother? I mean, what would it take for old Leonard... For you to believe that Leonard is God. I mean, for you to like James, to start off his letter, James, a bond servant, meaning a slave to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, what would it take for you to say, I'm a bond slave to my brother who's God? Something radical would have to happen. You know, I've told some of you about my brother. Some of you know him. He is... The salt of the earth. My brother, man, I honestly have never heard my brother say a single cuss word. He's 38 years old. I don't, I cannot, I've never heard my brother say a single cuss word, honestly, in my entire life. It's bizarre. Uh, my brother went all through college in a fraternity, stayed out two, three, four in the morning hanging out. My brother, to my knowledge, never even touched a drop of alcohol, unlike his younger brother. He never, he, was, he didn't do it. I honestly don't even think that my brother, I, I don't think he kissed his wife before they got engaged. I mean, wow. Now, they've got three kids, so they've done a little more since then, but he's, he's good, man. My brother is in his Bible every day. He's planted of church. He did two inner city ministries. I mean, you talk about a guy who lays it down. Uh, my brother didn't care. He lived for the kingdom. My brother would go to high school in shorts and black socks and dress shoes. That's what he did. He didn't care. In a plaid shirt. I'd be like, you're embarrassing me. He didn't care. Only one person he cared to please. See? But... If my brother had ever come home one day and said to me, Yo, Walt, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'd go, you know, Walt, uh, me and the Father, we're one. Uh, Walt, before Abraham was, I am. I'd say, you are a nutcase. 
And, and, and the only way he could prove to me that he and the Father are one, and if you've seen him, you've seen the Father, he'd have to do a lot more than, you know, walk on water or something. I'd be like, dude, there's planks or something under there. What would have to happen is this. It's not real hard. After he was executed, okay, then my brother, all he would have to do is come back from the dead and come to me and go, Huh? What would I tell you? Which is, in fact, what Jesus did to James. He came back and he showed himself to James because James didn't believe his brother's claims. He thought his brother's claims were ludicrous. He grew up with the guy. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, he never got drunk. Yeah, I never heard. Yes, he always obeyed mom and dad. But he was a Nazareth. He was a carpenter with my dad. You see? He's not God. Until suddenly Jesus comes back and he goes, Hey, James. And James, like Peter and like Thomas probably fell on his face and he said, My Lord and my God, depart from me for I am a sinner. And in fact, when you read the letter of James, notice that James never ever refers to Jesus in any sort of family terms. Because it doesn't exist anymore. Jesus is my Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ. The Messiah. God Himself. You see? And I'm a slave to Him. What would it take for you to believe your brother was God? Well, James believes. And James, you can't say, by the way, that James wanted to get on the bandwagon and get on the gravy train and make it rich. James becomes the bishop of Jerusalem and eventually gets killed. See? He even gets his own life taken from him, holding fast to the end that his brother is God. That was a serious deal. Saul, don't need to spend too much time here. Saul... Because the great persecutor becomes probably the most tremendous, the greatest follower of Jesus Christ in the history of the church. Three missionary journeys, writes 13 books of the New Testament. Not bad. Yet he was the persecutor. He was the one who, with all zealousness, he says, sought to persecute believers, persecute Christians. And yet... We know from Paul's account that on the way to Damascus to go kill more Christians, he has an experience, an encounter with Christ. you remember? And all of a sudden, he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why dost thou persecute me? And he says, who are you, Lord? He knew it was the Lord. And he heard those dreadful yet gracious words, I am Jesus whom you persecute. And Paul believes and gets saved and turns his life around completely and ends up becoming the greatest apostle in the church. What would it take to convert the greatest persecutor of the church to be the greatest follower of the church and give everything up? He gave up essentially his road to greatness through Judaism. He gave up his hopes to ever be a leader in the Sanhedrin. He gave up his family, his heritage. He gave it all up. And gave his own life. In fact, if you ever want, if you're ever going through a hard time, can I give you a great chapter to read? Go read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul gives his resume of his sufferings. You guys remember that chapter? I've been stoned three times, got the 40 lashes minus once, three times, five times. He gets whipped five times with the 39 lashes. Five times! You'd think after about the third time, he'd go, what did I buy into? What is this? Shipwrecked? Spent a night and a day in the sea? Just doggy paddling all night in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And yet, at the very end of all of that, Paul says, yet praise be to the Father. You think this guy knew what touched his life? You bet he knew it was the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I put a debate together years ago down in Prestonwood Baptist Church. And we had, uh, I brought in one of the top atheists in the state of Texas to come in. And he debated one of the top apologists in America. And they debated Christianity, whether it's true or not. And when they got to the conversion of Paul, the atheist was pressed and asked, how do you explain the conversion of Paul? And this is what he had to say. And it gave me such comfort in my own beliefs that this is what he had to say. He said, apparently Paul's conversion must have been while he was on the road to Damascus, Paul apparently had an epileptic seizure. And through the seizure, 
he had an experience thinking that it was Christ on the road to Damascus and it totally converted him and changed his life. And that's his explanation. How do you explain Paul's conversion? A seizure. How do you know that? Where do you see that? that and Paul shook mightily. And that Paul had some sort of... Uh, where do you see that? He just reaches out. Give me, uh, yeah, give me that. Yeah, there we go. That'll explain it. No basis, no evidence, no nothing. Just, I need something to explain it. Well, even if you explain that one thing, you've still got to explain the brother, James, being converted. Jude, who's the brother of Jesus, being converted. Right? You've you got to explain the empty tomb. Where did it go? Y'all with me? So, these are just basic facts. Was Saul a persecutor of the church who then became the greatest follower of Jesus Christ in the early church? Yes. Historical fact. No one disputes that. Last two. An estimated five to 10,000 Jews became followers of Jesus by 70 A.D. By the time of the destruction of the temple, thousands of Jews became followers of Jesus. You know what's remarkable about that? It kind of goes along with G. That significant customs and beliefs had to be changed by the Jews in order to believe that Jesus, in fact, was the Son of God. You know what one of them was? One of the fundamental tenets of Judaism was that anybody that hangs on a tree has got the curse of God on their life. And crucifixion, anytime someone was crucified, the Jews believed that the curse of God rested on that person. And yet they see Jesus crucified, open shame, public humiliation, naked on the cross, with the curse of God on his life. And yet, that same person they see with the curse of God on his life is the same person that later they believe is in fact the Messianic Son of God, God Almighty Himself. The same one that they would call Lord, Kyrios. The same name for Adonai that you would give God in the Old Testament. How do you explain that? All of a sudden the sacrificial system was no longer necessary. What would have to happen to a Jew for sacrifice to no longer be necessary? There would have to be some final sacrifice, wouldn't there? Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. He's the final sacrifice. They believe that. You think that something significant would have to happen for them to believe that? All of a sudden the Sabbath day is changed to Sunday? You think that's pretty big for a Jew? You bet, because they struggled with that. They debated that. Moving the Sabbath day from Saturday to Sunday. But they did it. They began worshiping on the first day of the week. Why did they worship on the first day of the week? Because that was the celebration of the Lord's resurrection. Died on Friday, rose on Sunday. So they changed the Sabbath day. No longer bound by the law of Moses. You think that's pretty big for a Jew to say, I'm no longer bound by Mosaic law? It's been fulfilled. So something big happened. What could it be? Well, it could possibly be Acts chapter 1. Remember what Jesus does in Acts chapter 1? He comes back for how long? Forty days Jesus comes back. And he walks with them, he eats with them, he shows himself to the people. And as people begin to witness Jesus, as he's selectively going places and showing himself, you begin to have this mass of followers. Because generally, when you see a guy tortured, crucified, and dead, and he comes back to life, it's usually a tip-off that something has happened. And that maybe he in fact is who he said he was when he said, tear down this temple... And in three days, I will raise it again. That very well could have been exactly what he said. You see? Now, I'm not going to go through all of the options here. Look here in Roman numeral 5. I don't want to spend too much time on them. A lot of you have heard some of these, but they're just important to note. That critics have come up with all sorts of ways to try to explain away this data that we just shared. Myth and legendary development. The problem with that is the evidence for the resurrection is so early that there wasn't enough time for this idea to accrue. It used to be said that resurrection belief was something that Christians developed decades after Jesus, at Jesus' life. But in fact, we know that within just a year or more, you see a fully developed creed of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's found in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. That's the oldest part of your entire New Testament. Dates to within one to three years of Jesus, of his death. The body was stolen. All they had to do was present the body just to snuff this thing out. 
The wrong tomb was investigated. That was Kursop Lake's theory in the 19th century. A very legitimate New Testament scholar. The problem was, it wasn't just that the women would have gone to the wrong tomb. It means everybody else had to have gone to the wrong tomb, including the owner of the tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. Didn't have much credence. Uh, this one's a fun one. Just threw it in there. Dr. Craig Cavan in California holds to the twin theory that apparently Jesus had an identical twin separated at birth. And so that when Jesus was crucified, his twin happened 30 years later to be coming back into Jerusalem, saw that his identical twin brother separated at birth, had a huge following, and decided to monopolize on it and presented himself as the resurrected Messiah. Not enough time to go into that one. But let me ask you this. This is the important one. Remember the two criteria, the explanatory scope and the explanatory power? Okay? We're looking for the simplest explanation. If the resurrection, in fact, happened, would that explain the empty tomb? It would. Would that explain why James, the brother of Jesus, and Jude, the brother of Jesus, were converted and ended up writing epistles in the New Testament letters? You bet. Would that explain the, re- the, way, the reason that Saul was converted? Sure would. Would it explain why thousands of Jews converted and believed Jesus, the one with the curse of God in his life, was indeed the Son of God and worthy to be followed? You bet. Would it explain why Jews changed the Sabbath day? Yes. Saw the Mosaic laws being fulfilled? Yes. Sacrificial system done away? Yes. Every one of these historical facts can be explained by one singular historical uh, hypothesis, and that is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And explanatory power, was He able to? Well, if He truly was who He said He was, sent from the Father above, then he indeed could rise from the dead. You see, one singular hypothesis explains all the historical facts. Otherwise, you come up with twin theories and epileptic theories and myth and legend theories and wrong tomb theories and you do all of this stuff to try to make sense of these facts and none of them explain all of the data. But the resurrection all by itself explains it. Y'all see that? It's a wonderful, wonderful case that God has left us Rooted in history. Indeed, God has left His footprints in the sands of history. That we can look back to history and we can see what He has left behind and we can piece together just exactly what Jesus did in space and in time by rising from the dead. Isn't God good to do it that way? He doesn't just have us believe in some ethereal, abstract thing out there that you just got to hope and believe in every raindrop that falls. Oh, I hope, I hope. But that he does it in history and it's observable and testable. See? That's how good he is. God has gone above and beyond what he is obligated to do to convince the world of of the fact that he's come. Not only that, but we've got the testimony of the church, the testimony of millions of changed lives, the testimony of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people living surrendered lives, abandoned lives unto God. See, it's the reality of Christ alive. One of my best friends is in missions, and I asked him once. He's been on virtually every continent in the world, and I asked him if there's anything that's the same among believers in every continent. And he said, yes, one thing is the same in every continent. Whether you go to Asia, whether you go to Africa, Australia, it doesn't matter. He said, one thing is the same, and that is the sense of the presence of the alive Christ is a reality in every person's life all over the world. You could go to Japan, Australia, or Mozambique and get believers from all three of those places. And they would all have the same existential sense that Jesus Christ is alive and His presence is alive. You see, this isn't just historical footnotes. There is a presence of Christ that is alive today, you see. And He's changed the lives of many of us and millions around the world. And that's good news. Close with the story. My son, when he was younger, I was left to cook him lunch one day. And so I began to reheat what dads do. We reheat stuff. So I got some broccoli out. Reheating broccoli. Not re-steaming it, just reheating it. Beep, beep, beep. Just reheating it. Got some applesauce. Got some chicken. Stuck that in there. 
reheated the chicken, getting all this together for him. Um, got him some, got him his juicy, right? A little juicy. And I'm getting all this, and he's hungry, man. He's crying. He's hungry. He's three and a half at the time, and he's in the. I look over, and I'm getting all this together, and I look over, and he's in the trash can, and I had just thrown out some really bad food with some really bad growth on the food. And Cooper's in there, and he's digging through there, and he grabs some of this food, and he's about to start eating it. And I look, and just out of just shock that he's about to eat my fungus, right, I go, Cooper, no, trash, yuck, yuck, yuck. And he looks, and he's just, I said it so loud, I just shocked him. And he starts crying. I go, Cooper, hang on, buddy. Look, I got you some chicken. I got some broccoli. I got some applesauce. Hang on, buddy. Eh, I want trash. I want trash. And he started crying. I want trash. I want. That's all he knew it as. I want trash. I went, no, buddy, no. Come here. I'm trying to pull him, and he's holding on to. He doesn't want to come over there. I'm like, look. And it was intense when it happened. And not long after that, I just began to think about that whole account because you know how the Lord works, how He uses kids in so many ways to teach us things. And it didn't take long for me to put two and two together on that, that Cooper is every one of us. And God has prepared this banquet, you know, in a sense. And He's prepared this really healthy food of broccoli and chicken and applesauce and you're juicy and it's so, oh, it's just banquet of food and yet we're over clutching the trash can holding on screaming I want trash I want trash isn't that how we are and yet God has been so good to give us his word and to enter into history and for Jesus the son of God to become man in the incarnation and to live a life that we couldn't live and to offer his life on our behalf and to give us his Holy Spirit that we might be with Him always after that. And for Him to allow the Holy Spirit to allow authors to pen the Scriptures so that now for centuries we can have His written Word in our hands. And for Him to allow the church to spread all over the world. And there's this banquet table. See? And yet we want trash. We want this other stuff over here. See, that's what the resurrection is to me. Is it is God's banquet that He offers that He gave us and He has made Himself abundantly known and He is abundantly good. And for anyone that doesn't know Him, it is, it is free. That's what's amazing. Easter is coming and it is free. See? He did it all under no obligation. He just did it because. See? That's God. He's good.